Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again uh, to both the Storyteller's Corner and to my YouTube channel, Byron Sidious. I am uh, recording this for video and uh, also recording it for the podcast uh, simultaneously. And so I've got a you know, nice big pile of things, materials gathered here uh, in order to produce this. And uh, this is, would be for the podcast, episode 104, uh, the review of Mark Swain's um, <clears throat> Legend of the Red Sun Village, The Crenshaw Serpent. This title I did receive, along with several others, back on the uh, 21st of August, 2016, in order to be considered for review, for reading and review purposes, I'm going to have to hold this in my hand part of the time. If you're listening, if you're just listening to the podcast, I, I apologize for the up and down quality on the audio. But, you know, I don't exactly have a, a studio, so do what I can. Let's get started right away um, with a read-off of the Amazon uh, listing for the Crenshaw Serpent. During the Vietnam War, a young United States Marine named Sean Chambers is captured and imprisoned in a POW camp. During his time in captivity, revelations regarding his fate and his role in a much larger war comes to light. With the aid of powerful demigod accomplices, the Crenshaw Serpent must ultimately decide where his allegiance lies before an ancient agent of darkness chooses for him. Now bear in mind, that when this title was sent to me by Mr. Swain, I, uh, I I had a couple of other stories that were in line ahead of him, so I didn't do a kind of a, any kind of background lookup of the book in question. So I had no idea really going into it what I was getting myself into with this story. I hadn't read this bio page until today, um, so I had no idea what I was going to be picking up. I just knew it was, I was informed it was a genre work. That's all I had to know, really. And sometimes it's better not to have expectations going in. Sometimes it works out fabulously that way. And so, um, of course, I did receive the title from Mr. Swain uh, via email for reading and review consideration. And, uh, there is the cover of the product, as it would be shown on Amazon. And a handy-dandy little book cover for the Kindle here. So that's out of the way. So moving on, anyhow, into the notes. Currently working out of the Spider-Man notebook. Handy-dandy notebook to have on hand. And I, I'm going to try and do... What I have done in previous reviews, which is not to do too much spoilering, uh, you know, spoiling of important elements unless it's absolutely necessary for the purposes of performing this review. So we're going to start with uh, pages three through five because page one was a you know, table of contents, copyright page, and, you know, a dedication page, as well as an acknowledgments. So. Just business at the front end, which is always to the good. Pages 3 through 5. 
Mr. Swain starts readers off with an intense opening sequence, a scene set in purgation. Grim, filthy, and raw, there is in this prologue a wonderfully executed savagery. True, a couple of passages are a touch touch clunky, but overall, expertly done. Uh, There is a heavy-handed messaging a little bit in the end of the scene, but this is forgivable given the superb quality of the writing. Right off the bat, and I, I, I will save that for later, but there is something else I want to make very clear about this opening sequence at the end of the review. Pages 6 and 7. Conrad, the old war vet in a nursing home in Seattle. Our introduction to this character and his perceptions is poetic in style and incredibly human. I adore his thinking of the other residents as his, quote, fellow inmates. This uh, this word choice is potentially the most revealing component and is expertly handled. Again, I tip my hat. Page 9. The transition from current outdoor environs in the nursing home garden to the flashback to Conrad's time in the Nam is executed with a clever, almost cinematic bent, watching sycamore seeds float down before him. One of them suddenly bursts into flame, and he's back in the jungle, seeing helicopter blades bursting. I grew up in western New York, which is lousy with sycamore trees. When the seeds get a bit dried and fall off the trees, they rotate slowly as they float down, like like helicopter rotors. This worked so nicely here as a segue that I felt Mr. Swain must be commended again for that technique. Really artistically done. Page 10, halfway down. There's a little bit of jumbling and uh, an overall awkward phrasing here, but only a minor quibble. Page 12, another minor issue, contradiction in character description. Uh, Stanton, the, quote, farm boy in Conrad's unit, is described as a large, freckled ginger mountain, indicating he's a big guy. He is then, on the very next line, described as stocky, which generally means short and thick or stout. Just a minor contradiction of terms. Page 19. There's a redundancy. Angrily yet calmly followed by angry and still. Again, kind of a minor foible. And this is quite minor, considering the intense verbal tete-a-tete between Corporal Galloway and Private Chambers, a.k.a. the Crenshaw Serpent himself. There is one nagging aspect of their fraught interactions that does not play off quite right. Given the natural tension between them, it seems almost unbelievable that they wouldn't have killed each other by now, or at least pummeled each other half to death. But still, that tension is good to have in there. Page 25, near the top. The paragraph wherein Galloway mentally assesses his current circumstances, it's not really in line with the narrative flow because it's essentially the same sentences written in three different uh, arrangements of word order stacked on top of one another. I suspect this was probably an editing mishap wherein Mr. Swain tried out uh, several different methods of saying the same thing and just forgot to remove the two that he didn't want to use. It, it's a minor mechanical issue, but it did lead to a in-head narrative redundancy. 
pages 26 through 32. There are a few mechanical issues throughout these pages, such as a lack of commas, Simmons's name getting an unnecessary apostrophe throughout, and unneeded uh, repetitions of descriptions. Otherwise, the stretch works superbly to highlight character developments by way of dialogue and interactions with one another. Pages 32 through 33. We get a glimpse here into Corporal Galloway as a man of curious insight, and one whose self-awareness is intriguing. He spoke of how he speaks of how at home he is in the shit, as it were, how in the conflict he feels truly free and like himself. This contributes to a phenomenon which develops in some servicemen during war, wherein they become comfortable living in conflict and battle, living their lives on the razor's edge. Every moment could be their last, and their awareness of their own mortality becomes a hairline border for extreme behavior, an expertly crafted window into this particular character's essence. And a good topic of conversation to get started, just in general. A very thoughtful moment and scene to have. Pages 38 through 39. While the action on these pages is quite well done, the dialogue is somewhat unnatural. Page 42. There's no transition here from the Vietnam conflict sequence back to Conrad in the nursing home. However, let's examine the frantic scramble here with the Marines coming under heavy fire in the helivac chopper. This scene is something that stands out head and shoulders above similar fiction I've read centered on the Vietnam conflict. The real danger of choppers in a heavy fire combat scenario. This was superbly done. Page 46. Well, holy fucking beans, we are now into genre territory here, folks, and Kowalski's, uh, Kowalski the Elder's reunion intro is a, uh, pers- per- is a possible blow away into, oh, we're obviously going into fantasy now. Pages 53 50 and 54. The Sicilian and VC general, those self-identified demi-gods, uh, have some contradicting descriptions, and the scene inside the shack is wobbly, leaving me wondering how many people are actually in there. The Sicilian is described twice, I think, or it could be two separate people. The separations are very murky, not very clear. Similarly, we've got some dense clustering in the pit cage chambers, a.k.a. the Crenshaw Serpent, finds himself in. There is definitely some nice development with the uh, venomous native snake coiling itself on him like a kindred spirit, playing into both his nickname and his focus on stealth and deadly precision striking. Page 58. Some of the illusion language on this uh, page is in this imagery gets heavily repetitive. Page 62. The snake in the rice pot. A little herky-jerky in spots due to some less-than-stellar word flow, this scene nonetheless stands out as deftly handled, the threat properly uh, quick and understated until the moment of, of catastrophe. It was actually really well carried off. There was good tension built in. Page 63 and 64. On these two pages, we have a couple of character descriptions and identifiers that are unnecessary, as we don't change shift of who the narrator is writing about. It's mildly awkward and redundant, but doesn't damage the overall uh, quality of the narrative. 
it just comes across as being somewhat filler material. Uh, there was kind of a formatting issue on page 65. I think it was more the, the manner in which the, the file was sent to me, more than anything. So, not even a blink. Uh, page 67. The Sicilian's dialogue is missing all kinds of punctuation, causing half of this page to read terribly clunky. Page 70. More awkward, mechanically unsound writing. Punctuation and character dialogue are sloppy, rushed, and disjointed. This was not a well-written page at all. Page 72 and 73. Okay, we have moved well out of the intriguing wartime memory tale and are now solidly in genre territory. And it isn't just the characters of the Sicilian, Kanbao, Ron, and Snooze and their talk of demigods and demons, no. There's been a complete shift in writing style, and it started after page 62 with the snake in the rice pot. Since then, the technical facet of the writing has loosened, getting sloppy in a few spots, but nothing catastrophic or DNFing worthy. However, this drop in focus needs to be kept an eye on, especially with the whole when there is no more room in hell, blah 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 thing, uh, rearing its ugly head. We've wandered into all too familiar territory. <clears throat> uh, there's a little, there's a little bit too much Judeo-Christian uh, mythology that I'm well familiar with, as are most people who read fantasy. We we know this story. We've seen it a thousand times. Page seventy-four. So Sean Chambers is an unknowing chosen one sort a demigod who is being awakened late in the game of a war between demons and the demigods whose job it is to protect the path, the trail of light or path to paradise, whatever you want to call it. It pretty much amounts to the same thing uh, from being entered by said demons. There's more and more demons always trying to get in. Um, so hell spawn and demons of purgatoria and, uh, it's quicker to go from Purgatoria to Heaven. There's a real estate issue, some kind of, not 100% certain, but I came away with an exact understanding of how exactly this war is supposed to play out. But effectively, there are demons trying to get into the pathway that goes to Heaven. And that pathway is referred to as the Trail of Light. The demigod's job is supposed to be to keep those demons out. So very much there is a uh, Winchester supernatural setup with a sprinkle of dogma by Kevin Smith. And there is, of course, a bad egg among the demigods who rebelled against his purpose and tries to corrupt other demigods to the dark side because... Clichéd. We are once more entering territory that we have seen a dozen times, or more. And this is part of the issue I had with um, The Balancers by Miss N.C. Stow. Part of the reason why I stopped reading her work, her book, was because we've seen this so many times before. But it can be done well. And is it done well? Let us proceed. Page 76. We've got great camaraderie here, marred by redundancy. Quote, As he talks with his mouth full and agape, twice in a three-person exchange of dialogue. The exact words, as he talks with his mouth full and agape, was used twice in a three-sentence span. It's really not good. 
it's repetitive and unnecessary. <clears throat> Pages 77 through 80. While this stretch serves as a glimpse at unity, it feels too padded without much substantive addition to the uh, preceding overall narrative. Page 83. Chambers and Banks' conversation, while a familiar one for anyone who reads military fiction of any stripe, is an important one to have. It helps give an element of motivation to soldiers uh, and soldier-type characters. The two of them are discussing effectively the ages-old question that we see in a lot of um, war films or that we read in movies about soldiers bunked, bunked up together at war during a down period before they go back to the front lines of, can we consider ourselves good men with all the blood that's on our hands? And it's, an, it's a very important dialogue for these types of characters to have. Not only is it part of what goes towards establishing them as characters, but it allows the readers to engage in that conversation themselves as well. Sorry about the little break there. I had to pause for a minute so I could check and make sure that I went through with the next segment. The camera only is uh, based on the setting it's on right now. I can only record up to 20 minutes at a time before it automatically stops recording and I have to start all over again. So I just figured I'd preempt it a little bit. Sorry, that's technical nonsense. You don't need to hear or care about that. Um, Because that's neither here nor there. Uh, Page 85. Solid fist drives hard into his solid gut, clunky and repetitive. Kind of broke a bit of the action going on in this particular fight sequence. Page 87. Prove his metal, spelt M-E-T-A-L. I believe Mr. Swain meant metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. Just a spelling error, nothing too big to get carried away with. Still in all, there's a haphazardness to this fight sequence that's uh, lacking the polish that the earlier narrative of the novel had. Mr. Swain may not have a fine-tuned familiarity with combat, as the conflict here is not as technically sound as the first half of the novel. And while it is fantasy, yes, we, are, we currently are looking at a scene in this particular sequence wherein Chambers is fighting against um, Viet Cong soldiers in a kind of punishment fight club incident where he's being forced to fight. This is an actual real-world physical confrontation, and and it should be played out as such in terms of the writing style. Reading this sequence, I did not get the impression that Mr. Swain is familiar with what actual physical combat is like. The entire fight sequence comes off as shaky, but this is more of a fact function of my own personal nitpicking than anything else. It's not a bad thing. It's not poorly written. It's all just kind of my own personal vibe. And this stems from being in fights in real life myself. It stems from having years of martial arts training. It stems from reading about fighting. From everything from Black Belt Magazine when I was younger to watching you know, MMA and watching films uh, that depict gruesome physical hand-to-hand combat and understanding what it is like to actually engage in brutality against other human beings. It's not a function of, well, this is just bad writing, because it's not. 
It was not bad writing. That's it's me being a nitpick. That's really all that is. So that whole bit there, you could kind of blow off or brush aside if you so choose. As just me being personally picky because of information in my own head. Um, page ninety one. There's a gorgeous line here. At the moment, urgency outweighed the details. There are times in life where you can't help but think, I don't have the ability to tell you all the information point by point by point because we got to do something right fucking now. We'll deal with the details later. It's a truism that anybody could identify with and was was well-timed and well-placed here. Uh, page 92. The Sicilian's cadence of statement, quotation, and response needs proper punctuation yet again. He read a little bit off to me, and I'll get into that more again later. Page 93, near the bottom. The snakes might benefit from not being visually described in this scene from Sean's perspective since he's been blinded by their toxins. Might be a little bit more engrossing if we aren't able to understand what they look like once he's been struck in the eyes with their with their venom. Page 98. We have a bit of a conundrum here with Sean Chambers meeting his escaped fellow POWs. Now, as the reader, I can suspend my own disbelief freely. After all, I know I'm engaging in fantasy fiction. This is shortly after the character has become something other than human. However, these men are looking at a creature suddenly dressed in Buto samurai armor with scaled fingers, slatted serpent eyes, and katanas in his hands. A creature they suspect slaughtered dozens of VC soldiers around them. A. How can they tell it's Sean Chambers when we've just read that he had a Kubo Kubo mask over his face? The traditional Japanese um, Oni fanged style faceplate helmet mask. And that's question A, is how do they know it's him? How could they possibly know it's him? given the new physical description of the Crenshaw Serpent. How could they know it's him? B. Given everything they've been through, and they are now armed to the teeth, having found a cache of weapons since they've escaped their pit, how do they not attack him? This is a big point drop. Because while I can understand that some characters may be able to just accept weirdness is happening all around us. Who the fuck knows what's going on? Let's just roll with it. Given everything these men are seeing in front of them, the walking dead, flaming demons, and a tree rising up out of the swamp in the shape of some kind of bizarre twisted bonsai, yes, that's all pretty mind-shattering. But here comes this creature that looks like nothing on this godly, goodly earth that they've ever seen before, except 
in reference to something being a slaughterhouse on legs. How do they not attack it? These are trained Marines with heavy artillery in hand. How do they not attack Sean Chambers? I can't believe that they wouldn't. So that's a big, eh, points off. Page 103. One cannot over-concur with someone. They either do or don't concur. Concurrence is a binary uh, in narrative. Page 111. The arrival of Wing Shin and the Dragon Ball Z Dilemma. The creature known as Wing Shin, a towering Oni with furry red horns, strikes me as artfully described, very well done, and beautifully constructed. His introductory activity is written well, too, and conveys an an immediately clear message. This creature is vicious and not to be fucked with lightly. Yet there's the DBZ dilemma, uh, evidenced by this introduction. What do I mean? Well, we start with Chambers, the titular Crenshaw Serpent, demonstrating vast and unspeakable power upon his awakening. Then we one-up him with the Sicilian, with his conjured sonic glass. We then one-up him with Kon Bao Nong's napalm uh, fire powers. Then we one-up him with Wing Shin. There's this immediate structural setup where, wherein each revealed character or reveal period has to be even bigger and badder and bolder than the last, much like the popular anime Dragon Ball Z. It's the escalation of threat, which is natural in genre fiction. That's going to happen, to be sure. Even when I use it, it's going to happen. There's the escalation of threat that's part of the nature of what makes compelling fiction uh, or genre fiction narrative. But this was done in such rapid fire succession that we're given no chance to really appreciate what we've been currently exposed to. It feels rushed, much like Dragon Ball Z. Now we're... uh, Going to do a little skipping here. No. Page 117. Quote, Backs away cautiously and appears concerned for the suffering man as tears of suffering escape the corners of his eyes. This was redundancy on a what-the-fuck level. The last couple of pages have been massively clunky, too, to the point of nearly putting the book aside as a DNF. Missing is the skill with which Mr. Swain was writing up until page 72. Since then, we have had an almost entirely other story altogether. There's been some intriguing mechanics going on, to be sure, but the longer this goes, the shakier the storytelling gets. Page 120, the last paragraph, slash the top paragraph of page 121. If I never read or hear the word tentacle ever again, it will be too soon. The word was used nine times in a two-paragraph stretch. Synonyms, Mr. Swain, I ask you to please search for them and use them where appropriate to stymie the stagnation and redundancy. Pages 121 through 122. The true apex of the battle between Sean and the birther demons is brutal but brilliantly done. There's a little adjective clustering here, but it pales in comparison to the deftly handled havoc of the melee. This is a promising uh, passage indeed, and harkens back to the intro of the novel, 
written almost in the same exact gritty, awful, horrendous things are happening style that we were graced with at the very opening of this book. A great deal of the battle's immediate aftermath is hectic, chaotic, and, well, that's kind of fitting. But there's also some dialogue near the end, most of which is between the Sicilian and Sean Chambers, a.k.a. the the Crenshaw Serpent. The upbeat banter feels a tad out of place, given the absolute thrashing that these two just received. But it's not terrible, because it does also add in that little bit of touch of these are comrades brought together by fierce conflict. Uh, Pages 148 through 150, the whole of the last chapter or section of the book is frustratingly vague and erratic, though I can understand the desire to cajole readers toward anticipating the next installment in the series. We'll pause here for a moment. Okay, and we're back to recording. So, here we come finally to our summation. Or rather, our conclusion. In summation with Mr. Swain's Crenshaw Serpent, we have a genre tale that spends its overall course in a sort of rolling hills pattern. We started with possibly the most gripping intro or prologue I've read in a long time. And I don't mean just across indie works. I mean across commercial works, too. That introduction in the Perg pit was phenomenal. Quite possibly the best bit of writing out of this entire work. We started with the possibility... or um, Sorry, back here to the notes. Um... And it was maintained, and it maintained an artfully crafted backstory for our titular character as a Vietnam War combatant for the first stretch. But the quality and technique got wobbly as the high fantasy elements took hold. And one character in particular came across as a raging stereotype of the sort we've seen too many times before. The Sicilian reads in manner and speech pattern, like any number of wise guys on TV or in films, just kind of spruced up with some magical powers. He was wooden. Mr. Wayne Swain can execute some truly quality combat sequences, though, uh, though these get mar- marred by the, a lack of terminological variety that renders some moments blunted, when they should be heart-pounding. It doesn't ruin them, but it does rob these scenes of those, you know, those points in their favor. It, it, dulls the impact of the holy fuck this is kind it just comes off and it kills some of the joy we have a character in sean chambers who seems to be fleshed out and worthy of our attention however at least long enough to complete his origin story with some minor mechanical fixes and stylistic adjustments this could be a top tier indie fantasy read it would be near the bottom of that top tier Do not doubt. Yes. But as it stands, it's still a passable genre tale that's still better than the 69% of the indie genre slop that's out there. This one gets a solid 7 out of 10 for my purposes. Thus concludes the review. 
to Mr. Uh, Mark Swain's Legend of the Red Sun Village, The Crenshaw Serpent. I'd like to thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for either tuning in and watching this on YouTube. I realize it ran a little lengthy for most folks' purposes or tastes on uh, online. Um, and about average length from the podcast as I've been doing it recently. Um, but I also have something else that I need to add in that I didn't write anything about on in the notebook, but Mr. Swain um, had contacted me on Facebook the other day just asking how I was doing, how the reading was coming along, because he hadn't heard from me in quite some time. And the last I had checked in with him was about a month ago when I was only about halfway through the story and hadn't made a whole lot of progress. And uh, I informed him, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I'm about three quarters of the way through it, but I might not get to finishing it anytime too soon. I've got some massive personal things going on in my life. And uh, I was like, okay, no, not no rush, man. No, don't worry about it. And I told him why, uh, <laughs> what exactly has been going on. And he said, oh, shit, um, take your time, man. No rush. Get yourself in a good headspace. He was a very understanding and classy guy from top to bottom, and I very much appreciate that uh, from you, Mr. Swain. Um, and I don't want, when I come across forceful in any of these reviews, when I'm badgering somebody on a bad part or a, 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 an error of grievous nature, I don't, want, I don't ever want anyone to think that I dislike them personally as a result. I just get a little heated and fevered about some of these things, especially when I see a tremendous amount of potential, as I do in this case. I completed this book, largely because there were several redeeming qualities about it, and with a, a few mechanical touch-ups, this could, like I said, be in the top 20 to 15% of the indie market out there without a problem. I guess what I uh, want to convey more than anything is that if you are looking for a new series to start of a uh, adult fantasy genre feel and style, then you may enjoy this work by Mr. Mark Swain. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves. And as always, keep reading.